0: This is the Global Research News Hour, airing on radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe the homeland of the Red River Metis, and the traditional territory of the Nahiowak and the Nakota. My name is Michael Welch. On the morning of August 6, 1945, a 393D Bombardment Squadron B 29 ventured from its position on Tinian, an island seized by the Allies in the late stages of the war. At precisely 8.09 Japanese time, the Enola Gay, accompanied by two other B-29s, commenced its bomb run, and at precisely 8.15, the Bombardier Thomas Farabee released the secret weapon, a 300-centimeter-long 4,400 kilogram weapon assembly known as Little Boy. 44.4 seconds later, the bombs exploded at 580 meters above the city. Mission Commander William S. Parsons described the events as tremendous and awe-inspiring. The men aboard with me gasped, my God, he said. Japanese on the ground, saw it as a brilliant flash of light followed by a large booming sound. Seventy to 80,000 people, about a third of the population, were incinerated from the blast and the immediate firestorm that erupted. A further 70,000 were injured and roughly 69% of the buildings were destroyed.
1: The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. A military base we won the race of discovery against the germans we have used it in order to shorten the agony of war in order to save the lives of thousands and thousands of young americans we shall continue to use it until we completely destroy japan's power to make war
0: that was president harry truman in an address Carried on multiple radio stations, including Saipan's OWI station, broadcasting into Japan every 15 minutes. Japanese Prime Minister Suzuki Kanetaro signaled at that time that he was ignoring the request to surrender and fight on. But three days later, at just past 11 a.m., a second parcel was delivered, this time to the industrial valley of the city of Nagasaki. This weapon, which carried five kilograms worth of plutonium, killed 35 to 40,000 people in this blast, with 60,000 injured. Twinned with the announcement of the Soviets breaching the neutrality pact and then their invasion of Manchuria, the Emperor, backed by Prime Minister Suzuki and Foreign Minister Shingonori Togo, pushed for the surrender of Japan according to the terms of the Potsdam Declaration. There were several days of pushback from the more reluctant members of the Supreme Council for the de- declaration of the war, but in the end, Emperor Hirohito announced the surrender of his country to the Allies on radio on August 15th. The tragic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki marked not only the end of the war, but the first and last time such a weapon was used in the theater of battle. In the years that followed, the weapons got more and more dangerous. The situation signaled a cold war between America and the Soviet Union. The vast majority of the world's nuclear weapons were implemented at the payload of transcontinental missiles. The explosion of one such weapon would wreak havoc on the target. According to the Stockholm International Peace Institute, as of June 2019, there were 13,865 nuclear warheads in existence. That's a dramatic drop from the 70,000 in 1986. Still, with 3,750 deployed and 2,000 on full operational alert, this atomic force has the potential to cause suffering on a scale beyond imagination. With this week marking the 75th anniversary of the one-time use of this particular weapon of mass destruction, we'll mark the anniversary with two interviews with people who have shed light on the subject. First, we'll take a look at the end of the era of mutual assured destruction, or MAD, and the debut of the more horrifying era of nukes in the theater of conventional warfare, with renowned researcher and academic Michel Chosodowski. Later in the hour, we'll hear one longtime writer and researcher into the nuclear front present details immediately after the war. And the efforts to hide the truth in a movie entitled The Beginning or the End. All of this in the next 60 minute broadcast of the Global Research News Hour. <laughs> Professor Michelle Chosadovsky is Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Ottawa. Based in Montreal, he is also the founder and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization and its publication, Global Research. He is the award-winning author of numerous articles and several books, including Towards a World War III Scenario, The Dangers of Nuclear War, and his latest, The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity. As we launched our conversation, Michelle started reflecting on the decision by the United States to target an ally coming out on the heels of winning the
1: war. There was, and I think this is very important for, for understanding of Cold War history, there was an official plan which was put into place and all this is based on declassified documents which can be verified to bomb the Soviet Union, to bomb 66 cities of the Soviet Union with 204 atomic bombs. Now, this plan was never implemented, but bear in mind uh, this plan was formulated at the height of World War II. It wasn't it was revealed in in public documents on the fifteenth of September, nineteen forty-five. But apparently, the Soviet Union had ear that it was it it was in the pipeline. Uh, uh, as early as nineteen forty-two, the Soviet Union had knowledge of this of these of this intent to use uh, the atomic bomb against the Soviet Union. So again all the, the 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 explanations which might be given uh official explanations or historical explanations that that you know that uh that uh the atomic bomb was uh, developed as part of the arms race and the cold war all of this falls flat because in effect if if the united states hadn't developed the manhattan project to um develop its it's uh, humanitarian bombs which uh, well they were portrayed as humanitarian bombs by by president truman he says he says we we will do as god instructs us i mean you can look at his diary it's full of statements how uh, how he thanks god for having given united states the the bomb uh, which will save the world now uh What we're dealing with is a historical process. On the 15th of September, 1945, there's a plan to bomb the Soviet Union and literally to wipe it off the map. 66 cities is is the the entire urban space of the Soviet Union without talking about radiation. And bearing in mind that in the first seven seconds in Hiroshima, 100,000 people were killed. Okay? without discussing radiation. So if this had not taken place, there wouldn't have been a Cold War. There wouldn't have been an arms race. And uh, the irony is that uh, this history of, of nuclear war prevails up to the present day. Nuclear weapons
0: were once hailed as a doomsday machine. If it is used on one side, there will be an opposing force on the other side. Hence, it was not conceivable they would ever be used. However, after the Cold War, the use of nuclear weapons in conventional warfare became a possibility.
1: They are still nuclear weapons on the drawing board of the Pentagon. The nuclear weapons, the thermonuclear weapons, the strategic nuclear weapons are hundred times at least those of, of Hiroshima. And then there are other types of nuclear weapons which we call the more usable, the more usable low yield nuclear weapons, first formulated in the nuclear posture review in 2001 by the Bush administration, which was approved the following year in 2002 by the Senate. But in fact, uh, if you look at the evolution from George W. Bush up to Obama and, and Trump, that notion of more usable nuclear weapons to be used on a first strike basis, and then they say, oh, harmless to civilians, okay? So, and they're not harmless to civilians. The, the, these uh, tactical nuclear weapons, bunker buster bombs, mini nukes, are from one third to 12 times a Hiroshima bomb. And so uh, the whole donk- nuclear doctrine in the post-Cold War uh, era has evolved from what we called mutually assured destruction to, uh, uh, to uh, a new doctrine of preemptive nuclear war uh, as an instrument of peace. So it's, it's in a sense, it's like you're changing the label of the nuclear weapon and you say... Uh, a bit like a cigarette pack of cigarettes you say smoking is good for your health this nuclear weapon ab sixty one twelve or b sixty one eleven tactical nuclear bomb bunker buster is safe for civilians because the explosion is underground and then it becomes an instrument of peace and that is the way which it has been portrayed by u.s military leaders uh since the bush administration and trump doesn't really understand uh the nature of nuclear weapons technology Professor
0: and he, um, you're saying that you know, from like way back you know cuban missile crisis and upwards through the 1980s there was a, a you know a doomsday scenario used with the use of nuclear weapons but that changed in 2001 what what was the thinking was this the uh, the advent of the neocons was was that uh, who was driving this new usable m- model of nuclear weapon
1: well you know there's been a there, there's been a continuous um a continuity in u.s foreign policy right from world war ii okay i don't uh, it you euphemistically we call that the post-war era but it is uh you know it, it we had the so-called truman doctrine now it, it The Truman Doctrine and the neocons uh, share, I mean, continuity. There there isn't a major shift in U.S. foreign policy. Where there are major shifts is, of course, that the Soviet Union and China, uh, the Soviet Union first had had nuclear weapons and has a very powerful military apparatus. And uh, the context today, of course, the context today is, is very, very dangerous, uh, first of all, because the Russians and the Chinese have the technology, the, the Americans have it, Israel has it, and um, and the quest. And then there's also this whole notion of of fake news, which permits the decision-making process. Uh, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. Um, you know. <laughs> we shouldn't necessarily disregard the fact that political decision makers in high office believe in their own propaganda and uh and and you you see that with hillary clinton he said well she says oh nuclear weapons on the on the table we're going to use them against iran okay now trump has said made similar uh, statements um and uh at the same time my understanding is that in uh, when the Senate uh, approved the Nuclear Posture Review back in 2002, uh, they they reclassified what we call as mini-nukes or tactical nuclear weapons as conventional weapons, so that they they were recategorized. Now, when you recategorize the tactical nuclear weapons and mini-nukes, then it's no longer uh, Donald Trump who's pressing the button it's uh, it might be a three-star general in the in the in central command headquarters who will decide on the use of the tactical nuclear bomb i personally i don't think that will take place but again because everything is there's a hierarchy in, in in u.s military planning but the the important thing to recall is that the technology is there and it can blow up the planet several times uh and um and now it's not, it's not the Russians or the Chinese who have, have defined nuclear, the nuclear doctrine, it's the United States. Uh, they would have been happy to stick with the mutually assured destruction doctrine of, of the Cold War, but that doctrine has been scrapped. And now it's, it essentially says um, uh, we, are, we can have nuclear weapons on a first strike basis, so-called preemptive nuclear war. And the preemptive nuclear war is to use nuclear weapons, even against non-nuclear states, just to prevent them from attacking us, okay? That is the background.
0: Could you uh, elaborate on the idea of the privatization of nuclear war? Uh, You know, way back uh, when uh, there was uh, technologies like the Northrop Grumman, B two Spirit, which was supposed to be used just in the, uh, you know, as, as a nuclear bomber, but then all of a sudden in Kosovo and Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Libya, they became part of the uh, the conventional warfare. So could you talk about how the private sector is increasingly having power and authority to direct the affairs?
1: Well, absolutely. Um let's put it in context today we have a 1.2 trillion dollar nuclear weapons program which is based on uh, uh, on developing more usable types of uh, of nuclear weapons v sixty one twelve for instance um, mind you from a technological standpoint nuclear technology nuclear weapons technology is not progressing one iota under this 1.2 trillion dollar program because the the technology to blow up the planet is already there you don't need to do do it two or three times or even to do it with low yield and and in fact now the the russians are saying that they have the technology to uh the the advanced uh, defense technology against any kind of nuclear attack now that uh we haven't really established whether that's true or not until of course we're not going to start trying it out uh, but uh the 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 ability to to uh, uh the ability of the soviet i'm sorry the ability of the russian federation uh in in weapons technology is 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 fairly well acknowledged but the problem is now how did this happen uh because uh, when they adopted the um, Nuclear post, uh, Posture Review in 2001, uh, this uh, gave the green light essentially to a new generation of nuclear weapons, which would then be produced by Lockheed Martin, uh, Northrop Grumman, the whole gamut of, of the defense contractors, okay, the major defense contractors. Plus their British counterparts, the British British Aerospace Systems, etc. Now, what 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 was at stake? Uh, in two thousand and three, there was a secret meeting held on August the sixth. I'm talking about August the sixth, two thousand and three, where uh, the major so-called defense contractors, the man those who manufacture. Weapons of so-called peace or mass destruction, whatever way you want to interpret it, but they came and they were. The meeting was held in um, in uh, Nebraska at Strategic Command headquarters. We recall that that was also the place where they had these secret meetings in the in the you know with Doctor Strange Love and Peter Sellers. Okay, but we can we can go back to those images, but uh strategic command headquarters in omaha nebraska is really where things happen okay that is the center of decision making it it coordinates all the defense systems worldwide it's uh it's a logistic center and it will coordinate all the allies nato israel you know the the whole military alliance will be coordinated out of omaha nebraska so these who comes there to this secret meeting? Well, uh, which was leaked. But the secret meeting was essentially uh, members of the, of the defense establishment, the Pentagon, the intelligence, and then the defense contractors. Uh, to my knowledge, there was no member of Congress invited to that meeting. And the meeting started on the 6th, and quite conveniently, which commemorates hiroshima and then it terminated on the 9th it was a 3 day meeting they came on the 6th and they departed on the 9th and of course hiroshima and nagasaki was symbolic they were not there th- these guys were not commemorating the uh, uh, hiroshima or the or the the fact that hiroshima led to te- 100,000 uh, deaths in the first 7 seconds no that their, their concern was to install uh, uh, or to reinstall, so to speak, the nuclear weapons um, in the post-Cold War era, because in the Cold War era they had all the, you know, they had all the pretext to do it. So then in the post-Cold War era, what they wanted essentially was uh, a continuation, and and they were playing a very uh, significant part in the configuration of this uh, nuclear weapons program. Uh, the, not, only, not only in the production, but in the ideology, in the concepts. So that they were, they were there, it was a consultative meeting, and you could say that, that from 2003, uh, from the secret meeting in 2003, to the Obama administration and to the, the Trump administration, we have it. We have this $1.2 trillion nuclear weapons program, which uh, is a hell of a lot of money. It's paid by taxpayers. Uh, it goes into the pockets of the defense contractors. Uh, and, uh, but now it goes into the pocket of defense contractors under the hypothesis that it can be used. It's no longer mutually assured destruction. It is; uh, these are humanitarian bombs. They have; they are usable. They have limited yield, which is a nonsensical statement. But apparently, the B sixty one twelve, you can modify the the yield a little bit, like you know, if you're in your BMW, you can shift between different uh, speeds and so on. That is the pattern. Now, uh, we're at a very dangerous crossroads, uh, particularly in view of the fact that people who make these decisions are not particularly literate either um, in weapons technology, nor are they literate in geography, okay?
2: Sure. And
1: I, I, I've been following the case of, of Korea. Well, if you, if you uh, drop a bomb on North Korea, um, Seoul, the capital of South Korea, is about the same distance uh, to the, the border with North Korea as, let's say, the Trump Towers in New York to, to uh, Atlantic City, New Jersey, which he, he does on a routine basis. It's 50-something kilometers.
0: Professor there you
1: are.
0: The anti-nuclear movement, which was quite robust uh, once upon a time, now it's, it's pretty much petered out at a time when, you know, the... Both of atomic scientists are saying that we're closer than ever to nuclear midnight. What can the general public do to turn the tide?
1: Well, you know, I, I think that the anti-war movement was co-opted in the wake of of the Iraq War. Let's be let's face it. In fact, it was co-opted even earlier. And uh, and I think that what we euphemistically call the left or the progressives. They are, they are essentially, they're they're funded by foundations. I I don't want to generalize uh, because it's a very, it's a subject in itself, but uh, you know, people who are prominent anti-war activists, there aren't many left. Uh, They're scattered. Uh, The trade unions will not uh, take a position Organized labor would not take a position. The World Social Forum, uh, you know, which was created at the same time as the World Economic Forum, they, If you look who who is on the on the on the decision-making committees, they're people. And what are they doing? They're negotiating funds from various foundations to pay for their expenses. So, you go to the World Social Forum, you can't really discuss war there yeah you, yes you say uh we can criticize the neocons the, the imf the world bank but once you start talking about about war and war crimes uh it it doesn't really cling and and uh i i think that we've seen this uh you know we see it in syria how how So-called progressive groups are supporting the opposition. The so-called opposition in Syria—well, the opposition is Al Qaeda. Okay, we we know that it's Al Qaeda. So the and and uh, that is not something recent. You know, you you go back to uh, you go back to the war in Yugoslavia. Uh, The Kosovo Liberation Army uh, was linked up to Al Qaeda and it was supported by organized crime. And the leader of that, of that particular uh, Kosovo Liberation Army was on the Interpol list. Then he became president, and 20 years later, he's accused of war crimes. So, you know, um, uh, there's also a certain co-optation of, 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 war, of uh, anti-war activists. We have to rebuild the anti-war movement we have to rebuild it from the grassroots and uh, and the crisis that we're currently facing in many regards is an act of war because it, it dismantles uh, national economies it impoverishes people and we don't see the logic of that of that uh, covid pandemic uh, why, why do we need to close down the global economy to save lives from something which is even according to medical experts, is similar to seasonal influenza. Uh, maybe a little bit more serious. There are lots of debate on that, but it doesn't justify closing down an economy and, and bankrupting uh, the whole, uh, whole of uh, you know, the whole world actually. Uh, and that is, the, that is what is happening right now.
0: You just heard from academic, scholar, and award-winning author Michelle Chosodovsky on new directions for nuclear weapons 75 years after the dropping of bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The attacks on the two Japanese cities were devastating. However, much of the news of the incident was distorted to protect American audiences from knowledge of the true horror of the event. In part two of this episode, we go back in time Notable writer and journalist Greg Mitchell. Please stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour airing on community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is also available as a podcast from the website globalresearch.ca. I'm Michael Welch. Greg Mitchell began his career as a journalist in the 70s as an intern for the Niagara Falls Gazette. In the 1980s, he worked as editor of Nuclear Times magazine, where he cultivated an interest in the history of American use of nuclear weapons during World War II. He's author of 12 books, including three focused specifically on this topic. His latest release is The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood and America... Learn to stop worrying and love the bomb. It's hot off the press and focuses on the role of Hollywood in distorting the message. He joined in conversation a week ago. Greg Mitchell, welcome to the Global Research News Hour.
2: Thank you. I'm very happy to be here.
0: So, first of all, could you talk about the uh, the cover up of the atomic weapon? I mean, is it? Uh is this unique for, uh, under American practices, or, or is it somewhat uh, a tendency that uh, we're just seeing revealed?
2: Well, you know, it was, uh, you know, the bomb was used 75 years ago and uh, was uh, used twice, of course, and it was announced by Truman to the world as a US attack on a military base, at Hiroshima. Uh, and then Nagasaki, and then, of course, the war ended shortly thereafter. So the, uh, the what, what I call the Hiroshima narrative was set in place from the beginning, which was that uh, only the bomb could have ended the war. Uh, it saved uh, upwards of a million lives, and you know, the other numbers changed uh, as uh, years have passed, but uh, saved maybe a million American lives. It was all we could do. Uh, it was the only way to force the end of the war. And therefore, uh, even though a lot of people died, it was uh, uh, moral and um, logical and necessary. And um, this was accepted by vast majorities of the American people, certainly nearly all the media uh, officials and, and so forth uh, from the outset. And it hasn't changed that much, you know, over the decades. That's, I guess that's what has always driven my um, I guess 38 years now of writing about this, um, that we still see even on 75th anniversary, when it's usually an opportunity for reconsideration, um, we haven't seen much of that. So, um, and you know, as you mentioned, it is kind of uh, un- the U.S. is kind of unique in this. Uh, much of the rest of the world has uh, e- either at, from the start or since has, uh, people have, uh, you know, have opposed the use of the bomb then uh, and are much more nucle- anti-nuclear in general. But the U.S. has, uh, in general, has supported the use of the bomb then. The building of new bombs and the hydrogen bomb and the arms race with the Russians and the fact we still have over 5,000 usable warheads today Um you know, makes us, uh, makes us pretty, pretty paramount in the world on this subject.
0: Just to focus for a minute on uh, the previous book, the Atomic Cover-Up, uh, they concealed a lot of information, like soon after the uh, bombing, and they had a, a team in there, and they were taking photographs, and right. uh, a lot of information that was being concealed, and, and it didn't, appear in the public media until several decades later in 1982 right. as a matter of fact. So could you comment then what do you believe this uh, information would have had on the American populace if it had been released in you know, the 1940s or even the 50s?
2: Right. Well, of course, we'll never know for sure. Um, the point is uh, both, both the book you mentioned, and my current book both really have to do with how in 1946, these, uh, the, the real or the true story of Hiroshima and Nagasaki threatened to come out. And in the case of the book you just mentioned, it was in the form of uh, footage, uh, documentary footage filmed by Japanese newsreel teams in black and white, and then by uh, an elite American military team uh, in vivid color, very unusual for the time. Um, and, um, uh, you know, all that footage and it's, you know, of course, it's a long story. And, uh, but the, all of the black and white Japanese footage and all of the American color footage uh, shot by our own military was hidden and suppressed for decades, as you mentioned. Um, the black and white footage didn't get didn't get known really until about 1970, and the color footage not until 1980. So, uh, in that period, Americans were very very few Americans were exposed to the, the really the most revealing images. Uh, we we kept seeing the mushroom cloud. We kept seeing uh, wrecked buildings or landscapes landscape, sort of an empty landscape of destruction, but we rarely saw. Uh, victims. We really saw survivors. We really saw, uh, you know, the aftermath of the bombing uh, in terms of human effects. So that footage was all hidden. And then, and as you as you mentioned, the second book, which is about in the same year, really, um, Hollywood studio MGM was about to come out with a major movie that was going to reflect, um, let's say, all sides of the what happened. In Hiroshima and, and why, and it was then uh, heavily revised, <laughs> totally turned around in message by the U.S. military again, and even President Truman himself. Um, and so, both of those things were um, driven in a dot, and either hidden or driven in in the opposite direction. So when you ask what would have been the effect of uh, of, of those two uh, pieces of footage uh, and other things that were kept, photographs and uh, articles that were censored by the U.S. occupation in Tokyo, uh, I, I could have had a strong effect just because people were, uh, you know, did not really appreciate the full effects of the bomb. They did not appreciate how different it was from, Uh, all the other horrible bombing of World War II. uh, And they certainly didn't appreciate where we were headed. Uh, Would they have signed off on this, uh, you know, 50 years of a nuclear arms race with the Soviets? Uh, So many weapons in the world to destroy the world a thousand times over. Um, Always at, uh, you know, uh, as we saw with the Cuban Missile Crisis and other events uh, on the verge of nuclear war. Um, So I, I would like to think that, the American public at least deserved a chance to sign off on this. Um, But they never really did in an honest way.
0: Now, when it comes to the film, and the name of the film was The Beginning or The End.
2: MGM, right?
0: Yeah. Now, it seems to me at the outset, many of the people involved were sincere. They they really wanted to have an, an honest report right but somewhere along the line uh, it it got you know tilted and changed so that ultimately you end up with something that's that's not quite what it is and it doesn't even pretend to 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 be well it, it does pretend to be an, an honest portrait but it right. it was distorted and i want to know maybe some of the ways, uh, the, the, the critical factors that uh, redirected that intention. I mean, one, for example, is the fact that it's MGM. Right. Uh, now, I mean, the, the man who is uh, in charge of it, Louis Meyer, was a, a, a Republican, I understand. And um, I, I'm wondering, I mean, is, it, is, is that a factor or could, could any studio have uh, put out a different result what are your right.
2: thoughts well you know yet you know, of course for for years now the in america it's been said and it's, it's true to some extent that hollywood studios lean left or they're tend to be liberal and so on and so forth but back then that was not true at all the the, the studio bosses were almost all republicans um and um MGM's Louis B. Mayer was especially so. Uh, but when the movie uh, idea came to him, uh, I mean, it's kind of a funny story because it came through the, the, the well-known actress Donna Reed, whose high school chemistry teacher happened to have served with the Manhattan Project who built the bomb, and he wrote her an urgent letter saying that atomic scientists are just panicking about what the future may, may uh, promise here. Um, we you know we can't build more powerful more bombs bigger bombs we can't have an arms race Hollywood must warn America not to go down this path and maybe even the bombing of Hiroshima was wrong uh, mGM's Louis B Mayer when he heard about this thought it was you know a great idea and it could make a lot of money, maybe make a lot of money was his idea so when the movie started the first scripts which I was able to Chart. I'm the first person to really go through all the scripts for the movie, outlines, uh, correspondence, and so forth. Um, able to see the tra- how how this original scripts, which were, um, you know, took it seriously and did have some of these warnings, did show uh, destruction on the ground in Hiroshima, for example. Um, how they were 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 then twisted over the coming year, and the, the reason was, among other things, was that. Uh, both the White House, President Truman, and the head of the uh, Manhattan Project, General Leslie Groves, were given script approval. And so when they saw what direction the script was going in, they demanded dozens and dozens of changes um, to make, this, make the story stand up for what, uh, what, what Truman and others had been saying about the reason for using the bomb and the effects of the bomb the need for more bombs, uh, and so that kind of, in a nutshell, is how the movie, which started as something with the uh, you know with a more noble purpose, I suppose you could say, ended up as basically pro bomb propaganda. And um, so my book, which is, has the same title as the movie, "The Beginning or the End," um, and actually the subtitle for the book kind of borrows from my my favorite movie, I guess. Uh, Dr. Strangelove, because the subtitle is How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, is that that crucial year or two after Hiroshima is when this real turning point uh, happened where uh, debate over this was pretty much shut down for uh, almost till today, you might say.
0: Now, what about, I mean, you you mentioned... Truman and Groves as, uh, you, know, ma- you know, major people with key insights that had to be uh, observed. But, I mean, what if they had a, did it the other way around? I mean, what if they just wrote off Leslie and, and wrote off Truman and stuck with what the scientists and uh, the other uh, observers uh, would have put forward? It was that? Right. Like, any kind of a consideration at all? Or?
2: Well, once they went down the path of, of uh, getting official approval, there was really no turning back. I mean, in fact, they gave, uh, they had a contract with Rose for 10000 or he got $10,000, which was like $120,000 in today's uh, pay, which is just on, you know, you'd never give, give that to an advisor. You know, you might buy, option a book, you know, very common, you option a book or a story of some kind, you give the author a, Good chunk of money to make a movie, but you don't pay pay someone, particularly someone who has a stake in the story, as a, how they're going to be remembered in history. Uh, give them one hundred and twenty thousand dollars to be an advisor. Um, so, you know that kind of uh, kind of put it in that direction for almost from the start. And um, so, what's interesting is to look at the details. What well, what were they concerned about? You know, it's one thing to say that they were concerned about how history would judge this or even how public in 1946 would judge this um but yeah you look at the details to show what they felt they needed to uh you know prop up and yeah, one of the most revealing things and there you know the book has just dozens of examples of things that were changed some minor some major Um, but one of the most revealing things in a way is uh, concerns nagasaki um, and I, have been, uh, someone who's been particularly concerned about how, how Nagasaki is ignored, uh, every year really, um, as number two, um, and I've written about it for like 35 years. And, um, uh, so it's, it's interesting that, uh, in, in the film and the film scripts, the early scripts had, you know, they portrayed the bombing of Nagasaki and uh, the aftermath and so forth. Um, But by the time Groves and Truman were done with it, the movie makes not a single mention of the second bomb. Um, It's eliminated from history in a way. Um, And of course, the reason for that is that Nagasaki has always been more morally troubling, even at the time there is much written that even in the aftermath of Hiroshima, were the media was largely celebrating the whole thing. There were voices, particularly from religious figures and actually many conservatives, um, saying that uh, you know, well, maybe Hiroshima was necessary. We're glad the war is over, but Nagasaki might might have been a war crime. Um, and um, and so that's you know that's so so I think even at the time, the uh, the U.S. military and officials recognized that. Uh, Nagasaki really raised, if Hiroshima didn't raise troubling issues, boy, Nagasaki sure did. Uh, bombing within three days, no chance for the Japanese to surrender. Um, Nagasaki was, uh, there was virtually no military there. Uh, I think that's generally given that maybe 150 military personnel out of 100,000 who were killed, uh, 150 total were military. Um, raised troubling questions. And so, uh, uh, you know, that's, like I said, one, only one of many things in the film that were, you know, were cut out or changed to sustain the, this overall uh, American narrative.
0: Greg Mitchell, there was a, you, you wrote about a, 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 a reporter named George, John Harsey. And he put out a uh, as a far a four-part uh, special entitled Hiroshima, and it was very, very critical of the. Uh, well, it, it did approach it from the standpoint of you know the, the, the danger and the, uh, you know, the impact on 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 characters and so on. Right. Do you see how did that, in particular. Distort the picture that was that ended up being told.
2: Yeah, that's. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was another uh, very threatening um, article that uh, appeared in April, uh, actually 74 years ago now, in August of 1946, by John Hersey, who was a famous novelist and war correspondent. And he wrote this massive article that took up the entire space of the New Yorker, one of the leading magazines. Mm -hmm. Um, And he basically just, he had interviewed um, six Japanese survivors and told their story of what, how they suffered and what they witnessed, you know, without a lot of drama um, and just told their story. Uh, And it really, it was like the first uh, time Americans had been, uh, faced or presented with that kind of uh, on-the-ground human drama. And so it had an enormous impact. This is August 1946. And um, enormous praise and impact and <coughs> uh, people reading it and so on and so forth. Um, and that threatened, as just as this footage we mentioned earlier, both the uh, newsreel footage and uh, the MGM movie, threatened the the Hiroshima narrative. Um, And so that's why I say there was this brief period where the future of that narrative and the the endorsement of the use of the bomb was kind of up for grabs. And as I detail in the book, uh, what happened very dramatically was that uh, Truman and his allies mobilized, I would even use the word plotted, to get the the former Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, to write a a kind of a answer article for another leading magazine, Harper's, uh, which which became a cover story there and had um, almost the same kind of impact as the New Yorker John Hersey article. Um, Drew praise all over the country, readers, uh, editorials, backing it. And Stimson's article was basically uh, 11 pages of defending the use of the bomb. Uh, all the arguments that we now are so familiar today with why the bomb had to be used, nothing else could have been done, no delay could be taken, um, all, all were, were kind of popularized by that article. So that article kind of set in stone this Hiroshima narrative that we still see today, and was a very effective uh, answer to the John Hersey article. So that by early 1947, this debate over Hiroshima and debate over making more bombs, hydrogen bomb, was pretty much settled. And it's been almost 75 years since, and we haven't seen uh, a lot of movement um from that point
0: now uh, one other point i wanted to raise is um the whole issue of uh the uh the anti-communist uh, menace and uh, your red baiting i noticed that there was an actor um roman bonin and right. uh, he had been suggested you know, suggested being a communist and then replaced um and as well, uh, Oppenheimer in particular had a, a wide ally. Uh, a lot of people close to him were involved in the Communist Party. Right. So I, I'm just wondering what role that this the, the red baiting that was going on at that time in particular had on the the impact of on, on the overall production of
2: the. Uh, right. The well, as you know, the the war, uh, when the war ended, of course, the Russians were seen as our allies and helping to defeat the Germans, but already there was great, um, issues raised about the future of uh, dealing with, uh, Joseph Stalin. And of course he was, uh, became, uh, became the master of Eastern Europe and, um, we worried about that and so forth. So there was, there was kind of a quick transition from the Russians, uh, Seen as allies, and maybe not so bad to the uh, what became the era of anti-communism here. Um, and again, this night year of 1946 was was kind of the transition year. It's When and I, as I show in my book, um, we start to see that uh, argument uh, in the beginning of red baiting, uh, red baiting, the, and, and the blacklist in Hollywood began. Um, you mentioned the actor. Roman Bonin, he was scheduled, in fact, they had, MGM had filmed him portraying Truman. And uh, it it actually shot the the key scene, really the key scene in the entire movie. And, um, you know, one of the most important episodes in the entire book is uh, the White House ordering that this scene be thrown out and a new one filmed, which was more Uh, sensitive to Truman and his decision to use the bomb. And they even got the actor fired. Um, And it's a little unclear whether the the stated reason was he lacked military bearing, uh, whatever that means. But he was uh, apparently a secret member of the Communist Party. It's possible the White House uh, was afraid of that. and That's what caused it. But, um, (coughs) excuse me. In any case, it does show that this uh, anti-communism era was, was uh, approaching or was already there. And of course, that um, once the question of Hiroshima was settled, then the next question was, what, how can we justify more weapons? And, and of course, the reason was because the Russians were a threat. The Russians were gonna to try to build their own bomb. We have to build more of ours. We have to build uh, the hydrogen bomb. And of course, this was a great debate. You mentioned Oppenheimer, who's a, a fascinating figure for most people, uh, for many reasons, uh, uh, and among them, the fact he was very conflicted about the helping to make the bomb and uh, and using the bomb, and he was kind of all over the map uh, in his response, agonizing. Uh, but he's also fascinating because he he was suspected of being a member of the Communist Party. It's never been proven, but his you know, his wife was a former member, his brother was a former member, he had a mistress who was a former member, uh, and certainly J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI thought he was a commie. And so there's uh, a good deal in the book about how uh, at the same time MGM was trying to get Oppenheimer, uh, Albert Einstein, and Leo Zillard, another very famous scientist, get them to approve or sign releases that would allow them to be portrayed in this movie. At the same time, the FBI was following them, tapping Oppenheimer's phone, uh, you know, opening mail. Uh, so it, it's kind of a fascinating uh, two track uh, episode where you've got the MGM chasing the scientists, the FBI following them, the scientists not knowing where they stand on the MGM movie or, uh, even on, on, on Hiroshima. Um, so it makes for a very complex, uh, but very lively and at times enterna- entertaining even, uh, picture of that uh, that turning point.
0: Um, just wondering maybe as a, a closing thought now, I mean, all of these, uh, the, the, you know, the, the whole emphasis of, of Hiroshima being first and first right, like every president since then has been on that same page. And all of this is built up in spite of later efforts to kind of shake people out of that. I'm I'm wondering, is there any indication that we will actually be able to uh, uh, see a day when people do start to rethink this uh, historic event? Or is it just, you know... Is it something that we're kind
2: of stuck with? Well, it's it's hard to say because it's been said in the past. that you know, the main proponents of, were uh, soldiers from World War II who feel that the bomb uh, saved their lives, and 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 I can sympathize with that sentiment. But you know, it's not really based. It's kind of the view from the foxhole. It's not the view of what was going on in the Pentagon and the White House. Um, but the feeling was that. Once they began to pass away, or uh, that that sentiment might be submerged a great deal, younger people would take a fresher look. And and there's certainly in polls there's some indication younger people uh, do have a fresher look at this. But um, it's still probably at least half of Americans fully endorse um, the use, still the use of the bomb. And, and you know. Uh, You know the problem. What's driven my work uh, very briefly for all these years is just that few. You know, not that many people know the U.S. still has what's called a first use policy or first strike policy, which gives any president the the okay to launch, initiate a nuclear attack, not in retaliation, but uh, when a conventional war starts or when even when we feel threatened. Uh, And polls show that there's at least one third of the American people. say they would back our first use again of nuclear weapons against Iran or North Korea or, or whoever um, and that first use policy is very much in effect so it's certainly driven my work and it, it, it answers the question of why does Hiroshima matter today um, and I think you know our attitude towards the use of the bomb in 1945 um, sets the sets us on a path for possible use against it's true precedent for use, again, could be cited by any president, you know, using nuclear weapons to save American lives. Um, so I think this is a very, I think my book is very topical in that sense, you know, very significant for today. And it's not just a snapshot of the past.
0: Well, uh, it's been a great <laughs> pleasure speaking to you, Greg. And uh, Thank you. And I wish you all the best.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: was author and journalist Greg Mitchell. His book, The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, is available now at bookstores or via Amazon. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, heard every Friday on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. It is also available as a podcast from the website globalresearch.ca. Music this week was Shifting Sands from the group Purple Planet. Their website is purple-planet.com. To leave feedback on the show, send an email to globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host this week. Join us again for another brand new podcast in seven days. My name is Michael Welch.